I woke up and I said to my daughter, we're going to buy a watch. And she's like, why are we going to buy a watch? I said, well, because I have to collapse the wave function. And she's like, what the heck does that mean, dad? Whenever I feel this anxiety and I have this big challenge coming up, most people would sort of like go for the idea of if I achieve something, I'm going to give myself the reward. I decided to put the cart in front of the horse and give myself the reward because I understood that embodying and being the thing I wanted to achieve was tantamount to actually achieving it. I bought this really nice watch and it was a, a reward for having overcome in the future the thing I hadn't achieved yet. Damn. Every time I look at my watch, I'm going to remember the thing that I've already achieved as if it had already happened. Hello, welcome to the Pretty Intense Podcast. Today might be the pinnacle of intense. Robert Edward Grant definitely pushed my limits of what I, uh, of my intelligence, keeping up. Uh, I feel like I might have listened to this about five times before half the concepts really sink in. He is a very successful entrepreneur. He tells stories about, you know, having a unicorn company, which for those who don't know, it means a billion dollar company before he ever went past a seed round. He's also a best-selling author. His area of expertise is in math and in particular patterns. So the conversation was very esoteric. It was very much about the scientific roots of our existence. So we looked at everything from music to pyramids to um, patterns in our reality, um, psychologically, uh, and how that relates to the greater universe and essentially our purpose here, which we talk about at the end. Um, so yeah, very enlightening conversation. I think that there are some people that come to this planet, this realm of existence that just are here to further our path and to, uh, anchor new, new realities for us and, and, um, new paradigms of existence. And Robert's definitely one of them. So I was so excited to get him on the show. Um, please enjoy the show. Um, listen as many times as it takes, because I think that there are a lot of concepts in here that we really, um, so many of us, really anybody could benefit from. Enjoy the episode. Please hit subscribe. It really tells me that you're enjoying the content and uh, these interviews are, are resonating with you. And I would love to hear what you think in the comments. Oh, I'm so excited to talk to you. Oh my gosh. Likewise. Really? I, I can't imagine that you're as excited as I am. I'm flattered, but I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to say that I win <laughs> well, in my I'm, excitement. I'm, I'm flattered by you saying that. Um, but I've been you know, seeing you on TV and everything for the, probably the past, I don't know, 15 years or something. So it's a, it's a pleasure to meet you. Man, there's so many areas that you talk about and touch on that are like totally my daily fascinations. Like, you know, what is reality? What is consciousness? Like, how were the pyramids built? What is time? Small questions. I can Small see. questions. No, those are gigantic questions. I think and I shared those same questions too. That's really? uh, I think it was probably the seat of my curiosity. And why I kind of wanted to start studying and learning as much about this. There was something like kind of a, a soul level curiosity that caused me to ask those exact same questions. And I think that's probably what you're experiencing. Do you remember what the first question was that really kind of like got you researching? 
You know, I was always fascinated by the pyramids, but I would say the the real first questions were more about physics. I wanted yeah. to understand, you know, what is the nature of the universe? I was, I think, tiring a little bit of this. It just wasn't fulfilling enough, this notion of materiality and what is materialism. And I felt like there was something more and probably quantum physics was probably an introduction. I'd say probably about 2008 when What the Bleep Do We Know came out on, uh, on YouTube. Someone mm -hmm. pointed me to it and I was like, wait a minute. And I already knew about some of the principles of Heisenberg's uncertainty as well as double slit phenomenon. But that's when I really started to question the role that my own mind was playing in the experience I was experiencing. And I started seeing more and more connections between what I was expecting to see and what I would see. Aha. Uh -huh. Explain more. I mean, this is like manifestation. This is kind of like how you create your reality. Thoughts become things. Yeah, I think all of the above. Um, you know, this idea that maybe the observer plays a role in what is actually observed. And that was probably as a result of, of learning in depth about the double slip phenomenon and quantum eraser and other things that kind of come along with that. And I was starting, and I, I'm sure you as an athlete um, knew that when you could visualize things and probably before you did a race, you probably went through the race many times through your mind. I and, visualize and most, perfect laps, yeah. And you visualize it. Most great athletes are able to do that very easily. It's like a natural thing for them. And mm -hmm. I, I, I wasn't an athlete per se, but in business and in life, I had always practiced this art of manifestation. And I would call it like collapsing the wave function. <laughs> yeah, but, just casually. I just called it collapsing the wave function. Well, I'll give you an example. So I used, to, <laughs> I used to collect watches. I don't anymore. I think the notion and the importance of time has probably diminished in my mindset over the last several years. So I don't, I used to collect tons of watches. And Whenever I would have a moment of fear or anxiety about something coming up that I was concerned needed to go really well, or, you know, I felt like I was living on the edge of a knife, right, from a risk perspective, like mm -hmm. usually always calculated risk. It wasn't like I was going to Vegas and gambling, you know, putting it all on, on you know, 21 or something like that, right, <laughs> on, on a roulette wheel. But what it was for me is when I feel this moment of anxiety, and I remember in 2014, I was in Shanghai, China with my daughter. And I woke up one morning and I was like, oh gosh, you know, this company that I'd founded that became a unicorn, like very quickly, within two years, it was on a run rate of $200 million in sales. What was the company? Uh, the company was called Alfion. It's now the second largest uh, healthcare lender in the United oh, States. Oh, wow. Wow. And, and so... I remember thinking, though, I needed to raise money at that time. And I was like, we're going to take the company public and I have to do a Series A and a Series B and all the other stuff. That Wait, you got to be a unicorn company before you even raised a Series A or B? Yeah. Well, That's, actually, the Series I'm... A, the Series A, I, I knew I was going into it. Our, we did a, a very large seed round and the seed round okay. was about $250 million. Oh, my God. And, yeah, oh, my so God. Rounds, That's yeah. significant. And then we did a, our series A was 700 million pre-money and our series B was 1 point, uh, 1.1 billion. And well, isn't a unicorn a billion dollar company? A billion dollars. Yeah. yeah. So I was, but the series A and the series B happened within, you know, only less than a year of each other. So it was all around the same time and I knew yeah. it was coming up and we were going to take the company public and I needed to, 
get, you know, kind of like a series A and series B done, even though we didn't really need the capital, we needed the validation so that we could get to the mm. public markets. But then ultimately we didn't get to go to the public market because uh, the market basically collapsed during 2016. There were no IPOs done. And so I went through like a really difficult time as a result of that, but that's a whole other part of the story. But what I was doing when I was in Shanghai is I was knowing that I was facing this thing and I didn't like the idea of having to go get venture capital money just to get the validation, right, on valuation. The company was growing leaps and bounds, very successful. We went from zero to a thousand employees in 18 months. Like it was, it was crazy all over the world. And what happened was I woke up and I said to my daughter, I'm like, sweetheart, we're going to go to the Bulgari store, Bulgari, <laughs> and we're going to buy a watch. And she's like, why are we going to buy a watch? And I said, she's like 18 years old at the time. And I said, well, because I have to collapse the wave function. <laughs> and she's like, what the heck does that mean, dad? And I said, well, what it is, is whenever I feel this anxiety and I have this big challenge coming up, most people would sort of like go for the idea of if I achieve something, I'm going to give myself the reward. Right. And so ah. I decided to put the cart in front of the horse and give myself the reward because I understood that embodying and being the thing I wanted to achieve was tantamount to actually achieving it, yeah. right? So I would buy watches because how many times do you look at your watch a day? That was the only reason why I would do it. And I would buy this really expensive watch that I'd been kind of like aspiring to have and everything when I was still stuck in my material world type of thing. And I would buy this watch. So I bought this really nice watch. And it was a, a reward for having overcome in the future the thing I hadn't achieved yet. Damn. And it was a burn the ships mentality. You've heard this story about, uh, you know, Cortez going to Mexico, a terrible conquistador type activity. But what he did that was kind of crazy genius, uh, I'm not putting any morals behind what he actually did to like, you know, take over the nation or take over the land from the indigenous peoples. But what he did that was kind of crazy was he had 300 men and I think it was six ships and they're in this bay and they all went to kind of go to the bathroom and they come back out onto the beach and they look and they see all their ships on fire. And they're like, how'd all our ships get on fire? And Cortez looks at him and says, well, there won't be any other ships coming from Spain for another year. There's 300 of us and there's 3 million of them and we have to survive this. I've burned the ships. There's no going back. Oh, God. He like, it was a forced, he forced the situation. He forced the situation. He's like, we're here to conquer and to win. And to a certain extent, you know, that was probably the stage of my life when I was like very much in that material mode of, you know, winning and, and succeeding and all of that. And I thought, okay, I'll buy a watch. I'll collapse the wave function. Every time I look at my watch, I'm going to remember the thing that I've already achieved as if it had already happened. Yeah. And I found it was very successful. And I could do that. I could collapse a wave function. But wow. that was the earlier stage. And I didn't really, that's the time that I still believe that I could make things happen in the world. And now I realized, you know, having gone through my own spiritual path is that, yes, that was sort of like me playing with myself in what's called Leela. And mm -hmm. Leela is this notion of Maya. Mm -hmm. or samsara, mm -hmm. which is you are playing with yourself to make you believe in a way that it was you all along that came up with this. And, you know, there wasn't a such thing in my world as destiny. 
I believed in free will. It was all about free will. You know, you make it happen. You know, there are three types of people. I used to say this all the time, three types of people in the world. People that like, some people make things happen. Some people watch things happen and other people wonder what the hell just happened. <laughs> and, and I would definitely be in the mindset of, I'm a make it happen kind of person, probably like yeah. yourself, I would bet. Yeah, I was going to say that's, I agree with that. Yeah. And, and so I, I really discounted any optionality or any notion that there could be a destiny involved. And that maybe what I called destiny, I later learned, might actually just be the free will of the higher self. Is this operating separately from us? Well, not separately. It's, it's working through us, but it is the first stop. What is that part, that observer? You talked about the observer at first, and you know I have kind of been a been in those spaces before where I've been been able to be the observer and in fact more and more in my life just walking through life becoming more of the observer of things instead of feeling things so personally it's just things happening um but what what is what is it that you're explaining then with this observer with this sort of higher self I just got done having a, a discussion with Aubrey Marcus when I visited Egypt, I was introduced to an expert aromacologist who explained the healing powers of various scents. I returned home with 18 bottles of powerful essences that unlocked specific feelings and had all sorts of healing properties. I became inspired to find a functional way to deliver them in a new consumer lifestyle product. Candles became my medium. Voyant means seer a reference to the inner eye chakra, one of the key energy points in the body essential to wellness and healing. Voyant is a doorway to openness and imagination, a catalyst in our daily journey. Whether you're connecting with others or enjoying alone time, Voyant strives to beautify the home and the soul to create a haven of peace and joy. The candle is delivered with a beautiful monogram 12-ounce stemless wine glass, which can be used after the wax is gone. My limited edition candle collection is available exclusively at voyantbydanica.com. And, you know, I'm, I'm in Austin right now, and I was just with Aubrey, and we we're talking about hermeticism. And the first principle of the seven principles of hermeticism. There you go. I read, it. I read it. I grabbed it because I was like, I had heard that you had about hermeticism listening mm -hmm. to stuff before I talked to you. And I was like, I read this book. It's fantastic. It's a vibe. It's definitely a vibe. And actually that's the third law or the third principle of hermeticism is vibration, law of vibration. But mm. the very first principle and each of these principles tie to the chakras, right? We're born the root is born into this world where we're conditioned to believe. It's like the construct of this world is, is conditioned to make you believe in a way that everything is about material. It's solid. You can count on this thing, right? Mm -hmm. You're born in this world of separation and you know you have this separation and then fear creeps in and all the other aspects that then we decide what are the things that bring us shame and those are the things I don't want to be. And the things that don't bring us shame are the things that I want to ascribe to. I want to show the world that I am that thing. And then as we get older, we start to want to align more and more with that perfection and not see the other aspects of ourselves that we repress entirely. Yeah. The shadow self. Shadow. Yep. The negative aspects of ourselves. Yeah. And so, you know, this whole idea of mentalism is the first principle of hermeticism mm -hmm. is to basically break down this conditioned idea that, by the way, I believe 
we all subjected ourselves to. You know, think of ourselves as more in a construct of matrix of mind where you're in an avatar. And this avatar body, right? Imagine that we're making, let's say you and I decided to make a video game. And the video game was here and it was intended to teach human awareness and consciousness how to expand. So you'd probably come up with some rules, right? And there would be like some ground rules. Yeah. Some, some you know, principles that are going to always be lasting, constants, if you will, right? Across that game environment. Yep. We want people to learn through experience, not by didactic learning. We want people to have the experience of what it's like. And the more real you make it, the more powerful the learnings can be. Yeah. So you yeah. put yourself into a situation where you don't remember any of it. Oh, it's a hot stove. I mean, you can say don't touch the hot stove, but sometimes you got to touch the hot stove. That's right. And you don't remember that you actually chose all of this. That's part of the game. And the whole game is intended for you to refine yourself and remember who you are. And so as you go through this game, you're, you're learning all these aspects of yourself. You start taking on, you know, I have to learn how to transcend this notion of duality. And it's not always about black and white. Here's what's right and what's wrong. Maybe the objective truth is that it's the sum of all possible perspectives. And maybe I can start learning to see outside of the perspectives that I had been conditioned into. And maybe those conditionings are, are more predestined in the context of when I was born and the time I was born into and astrology and numerology and all the other stuff. And what you're describing now is a game that's more like a matrix of mind. And Max Planck, who was the, you know, the physicist that I would say was probably the mentor, most of, you know, possibly could be seen as the mentor of Einstein because somebody had to sponsor Einstein. Einstein was you know, working as a patent clerk in, in, in Switzerland. He wasn't going to become this huge academic Nobel laureate until somebody came along and sponsored him in his thinking. And that was Max Planck. But Max Planck was definitely more of a quantum physicist yep. than Einstein. Einstein was more about if I can see it and it's there, you know, there were a lot of different philosophies at the time. So if you believe in Heisenberg's uncertainty principle and you understand the double slip phenomenon, then you would have to ask the question, wait a minute, if I'm not observing something, does it even exist? It's that concept of, you know, if a bear shits in the woods, right? Did it really ever happen if nobody observed it? If a tree falls, then did it ever happen if no one observed it? Yep. So what you're experiencing, what you just described is going from a world of observation equals judgment to now a world of observation, delayed judgment. And maybe eventually you go to the next level as well beyond that, which could be no judgment or see it from different perspectives. This is why when people are asked, you know, if they were an eyewitness to a crime, there were 30 eyewitnesses of the same crime, but they all have entirely different versions of what happened. And that is their truth. Yeah. And realizing that my truth is not really the whole truth. It's only one facet of a prism we call truth. In the heart of Napa Valley lays Somnium, which means to dream in Latin. The Somnium Vineyard Estate is an extension of the love and intensity that I pour into everything I do. To experience our wines, visit SomniumWine.com and use the code Somnium to receive a $10 flat shipping rate. Please drink responsibly. I'm very fascinated and I've been asking various different people for a while now if it's 
if there is such thing as an objective truth. Because, you know, with our our world really showing us who we are and information about us, like, can we have, and we all have our own lens, is it possible? Is there an objective truth? And it, and maybe if there is, is part of this 3D matrix that we're in and this reality that we live in, is part of that that we we can't, we don't have, we can't see that objective truth? I think... If we could raise our consciousness to very, very high levels, right? And that's one of the principles within Hermeticism and the Kaibalion and the seven Hermetic principles is that vibration determines that. No matter what happens to us, you can determine whether or not that was possibly the worst thing that ever happened to you based on your judgment or possibly even the best thing that ever happened to you. How many times have you had an experience that you thought that was the worst thing that ever happened? Oh my God, it was horrible. And then later on, come back to it and said, gosh, that turned out to be the best thing that ever happened. I mean, I've been thinking about that as well, that really our interface with reality, our, our experience of reality is really just perception. It's a, and which perception is inevitably subjective. You know, I, I often say, you know, it's like we, I used to say, well, we have a perception or perspective based on geometry of what our vantage point is, the position from which we're seeing something. What angle am I looking at something? Well, maybe the better way to say it, what if we replace the word vantage point with advantage point? <laughs> that yeah. actually our conscious minds are looking at things and we're justifying whatever truth we want to see based on what we perceive as our advantage in it. Yeah, it's just a perception shift. <laughs> it's just a perception shift. So with that, I think what is happening with all of us is we're all starting to wake up to, gosh, and it's, it's, it's very distressing, right? It's like the stuff I thought was true, the way I saw the world, uh, there may be a different way of seeing it. And so then the immediate reaction to that's going to be to, defend the old positions sure right and fight vociferously for those positions to remain because that's habit we all sort of get into that now why do we fight why do we fight for the reality that we know i think because we get triggered with the idea that it might not be what we knew i think to a certain extent you know i'll give you an example right right now we've got a very polarized society i don't think anyone can deny that right we've got right geez, there's some people that are saying, hey, are we going to have like a civil war or something? Who knows, right? I mean, it's not something most people would probably say on a podcast, but I'll say it. It's, it's kind of a scary time on many levels, but also inside that might be a huge, massive silver lining of transformation too. Oh, yeah. Well, because clearly what's going on from a system perspective right now, I can't say that it's really working out great, you know, to be honest. And for me, who sits kind of in the middle, I'm not neither Republican nor Democrat. As I kind of look at this, what we forget is that there is a rhythm to all of these things. What we used to call, you know, Democrat actually often transforms over time to Republican and vice versa. I'll give you one example of this. 170 years ago is not that long ago. We had a civil war. And today you look at, you know, which party, is more aligned with the NAACP. It's going to be the Democratic Party, without a doubt. But it was the Democrats who were the plantation owners in the South. Exactly. Right? And it was Lincoln who was a Republican. 
who basically fought for emancipation proclamation. But then you could also argue, but wait a minute, was it really about that? Or was it about Northern dominance of the industrial revolution and unfair trade practices? Was it really just about money, right? You could go down lots of rabbit holes on this. And yeah. what I would say is that what we thought was a certain thing is not necessarily dual. You know, I have known people that are arrogant in their humility. Think about that. So is arrogance and humility really a linear juxtaposition of each other or rather representing two poles or rather is it circular? Oh, definitely. Right. And so I from mean, a philosophical yes. perspective, that's this transition. I think we're all sort of experiencing right now, which is distressing and, and that causes us to be triggered. And really, when the universe is throwing at us triggers in this Maya matrix of mind that Max Planck would say, you know, in his own statement, he said, there is no matter as such. Right. And what this really points to is the notion of a conscious mind behind the universe. And that's sort of the far end, probably, of the thinking of quantum physics. So in that reality, it's not that we get what we deserve, per se. It's maybe we get what we expected because our belief system actually informs that reality around us. It, maybe it's not a universe as much as it is a you inverse projected back. It's you on the inside projected back to you. Yes. All the aspects, because this is your own universe, right? It's your own universe. Your lens of perception is your own unique lens of perception and how you experience that world is going to define your reality. 90% plus of what happens to us isn't what really happened to us. What is it you've talked about before, like words coming into awareness before, like you see it in your reality? And I've had that too. Mm -hmm. How does that play into that paradigm? I'll give you a funny example. I was uh, on social media and there was this weird, and this is happening more and more lately. There was this like post of this guy wearing a giant neck brace. And he was like sitting at a cafe. He's not able to move around. But then this pretty girl walks by and he wrenches his neck to like look at her, right? And he's like, oh, that hurt. And then another girl walks by and he does it again. He couldn't stop himself. And so it said like something, something crazy, like men will be, you know, boys will be boys or something like that. Yeah. And I was sort of laughing about that. And I then went from, you know, being on social media to a call that I had with my attorneys who were working on a patent license agreement with me. And the attorney gets on and he's, the first thing I see is this giant neck brace. I've never been oh on a call. Oh my God. I've never you been on a call with an attorney with a giant neck brace. He's like, oh my God. <laughs> right. I just had surgery, you know, and I had compressed disc and all that. I was just like, okay, that's weird. Now, before I would have looked at that and said, hmm, that's kind of a weird coincidence. Right, exactly. Right. Now I look at it and say, maybe there are no coincidences. And maybe there's a message inside this from my you inverse, which is really my subconscious mind. And what is that message? I don't know yet. As you go further in this process and go down this rabbit hole, you'll find more and more and more synchronicities in the way that Carl Jung described. He described the enlightenment process or what he termed individuation as the process of increasing synchronicities that whether those are, they often start as numbers, they might be words, right? But you'll, you'll see that there's like this subtle background 
almost like a radio frequency where everything and everyone is almost like on a new script. Yeah. It's like a timeline. Right. And you know, because once you get tapped into it, and maybe most of us, and I was totally unaware of this, collective consciousness, until the last several years. Mm -hmm. And as I got deeper and deeper into studying and understanding this and really looking at the work of people like Carl Jung, who really just took hermeticism and alchemy and applied it in the contextual framework of a scientific mindset. And that's what he did. I mean, that's his whole individuation process is that. But he was an alchemist. He was very much not Mm -hmm. of the same thinking. You know, he took Maslow's hierarchy of needs Mm -hmm. and added to it another layer, not self-actualization but self-transcendence. The highest level would be self-transcendence or enlightenment, where you realize that what you deem as the higher self and your lower self here in this three-dimensional, four-dimensional experience are actually not separate at all. Maybe this you inverse and how you perceive the world around you is just an artifact of your subconscious mind and you're being projected back upon all the things that you deny in yourself and then you see them in the world around you and they come back as reflections until you learn one day that the things you judged are actually the things that you continue to attract. Yeah. And once you finally get that what we attract is what we judge until we no longer judge what we attracted, yep. the world starts to change. So being the change you see in the world and going through a spiritual process is not about learning how to judge more. I don't believe we came to earth to learn how to judge. I believe we came to earth to learn how to love. I believe we came to earth to learn how to accept. Which always starts with the self, learn how to accept. And it's an inside job. So our reality is just showing us where we don't love ourselves. Exactly. So I want to talk about synchronicities for a Mm -hmm. second, because you had mentioned the quote being about increasing in, in increasing synchronicities. Mm -hmm. So is it something that you find a way to create more of by being on the path, by being in alignment with your higher self? And it's like, or are we just noticing? Like, do you think that, do you see what I'm saying? Like, are we just becoming more attuned to how the universe speaks to us? Or do we actually, and maybe it's a both, maybe it's not an or, it's an and. Or do and or do we get on the path and then we actually do notice them? Even if we're not seeking them out, we notice them. How do synchronicities work? Because I think this is a language that a lot of people are aware of, but they don't quite understand the roots of it and the significance or how to or how to notice them even or how to create them. I think synchronicities are again, it's a reflective communication process. So I don't know because I wasn't aware of it. I don't know that I had all kinds of synchronicities 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. What I do know is I started noticing it. And as I started noticing it, I would start following the threads or the breadcrumbs. Mm -hmm. As I followed the breadcrumbs, then I would get more and more synchronicities. Mm -hmm. So it was almost like the universe communicating back to me. Here I was, you know, I'm 53. I, at 42 years old, started realizing I can communicate with the universe. And it started out with a one-way communication. And now it's becoming more of a two-way street 
of communication. And I think as that occurs, as you get more of that two-way street, you can start interacting in different ways with this communication. And for me, it started out with mathematics because math and number is, you know, the, the universal language yeah. right, of, 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 of a construct. And I fundamentally believe that, you know, the geometry has been all around us all the time. But if you don't stop, if you just get stuck in your day-to-day -day routine of life, you can easily miss all of these things. But fundamentally, I believe that we're here to find and remember these things. In addition to learning how to transcend judgment and learning to love and replace judgment with acceptance, overcome the first level is overcome fear and separation, right? As you break past that and replace fear with gratitude, then you start to learn how to, to non-judge and to observe rather than judge. Mm -hmm. And try to look at different perspectives. Maybe the way I'm seeing it is not the only way to see it. And that's when your mind really expands. And then the next step after that is to realize that maybe the universe is actually speaking to me. Maybe there is some form of destiny. Maybe I chose it. Maybe this is a game I'm living. And, and this is exactly what it's referred to, the hero's gamos, right? The hero's gamos, which doesn't mean the hero's game. It actually means the alchemical wedding, but it is the, the that's sort of the the end result of what the game of life actually is. Sure, you go up to the seventh chakra, which is the the crown chakra, and that's why gender is the seventh of the seven hermetic principles. It is the rec rec recognition that you know, while it's already described as polarity, gender is a basic aspect of this universal experience. Yeah. I think what is everything is gender. Everything has a gender. And that's a reference to this part of your brain called the cave of Brahman, or even the wedding hall, as it's sometimes referred to between the masculine and feminine, the pineal gland and the pituitary gland. And those two things come together. And all of a sudden you can now step into a new level of consciousness, which is no longer conscious versus subconscious, but it's actually integration of subconscious and shadow. Yeah. And that becomes the superconscious mind. Yeah. I was having a conversation with this about this with Zach Bush. Do you know Zach? Yeah. Yeah. I was just with him at uh, Aubrey's uh, conference. Okay. I was, I had dinner with him and we were getting on this topic of the masculine feminine and really just like next, like future, future relationship which is two things. It's one with the self, with the masculine and feminine and creating that balance and that synergy and um, sovereignty. But then, and he says like, if you put two people together that both have that alignment with themselves, mm -hmm. it takes one couple to transcend humanity. That's right. And I was like, so... Please elaborate your thoughts on that. I could not agree more. In fact, he said the exact same words verbatim at the uh, Arcadia conference. Okay. And, and uh, it was kind of an interesting challenge. I think he put out to the crowd. Everyone's like, who's the couple? <laughs> it was pretty cool. But I, I, I really think highly of, of Zach. I mean, he's a, he's a profound uh, thinker also, but also huge heart. And what he's referencing is this notion of the alchemical wedding. The alchemical wedding in alchemy 
is the representation really it's analogous or a metaphor of the masculine and feminine, which is also embodied in our own brains. It's the left and right brains. Now, first of all, I don't believe our brain is a, I don't believe that it is a hard drive storage unit with RAM and ROM. Okay. I believe that it's a radio receiver. Yeah. And that we can change the tuning of that radio. Hello, what's your dog's name? Her name is Ella. I think that Ella. she's scared because there's a storm happening and they never happen in Arizona. So I don't know what kind of turbulence we're creating right now, but, uh, but it's a big storm. So she'll just sit there for a moment, I suppose. Awesome. So, so basically this idea of masculine and feminine is really metaphorical to our brains, which are really processors, like a super, super incredible processor and radio receiver. Mm. And, and we can tune our heart dial to the frequency, which then determines what radio stations we're picking up. What frequency are we going to be picking up? So you could have the exact same circumstance. And if you're in a high frequency mode, you're going to see the positive aspects of that thing. All yeah. the beautiful positive aspects. Yeah, exactly. What everyone else might be going, that's horrible. What the heck? This is terrible. When you're in a low frequency mode, you're going to see all the negative aspects of that thing. This is our own conditioning biases. And particularly in today's world where we all live in an AI echo chamber. We're going into, I just wrote a book called NeuroMind. M-I-N-E-D. We're all being NeuroMind because the greatest or the most valuable asset in the world now is no longer oil. It's actually data. Exactly. And, and so as a result, I wrote this book with Michael Ashley, who's a fantastic uh, person as well. And the book goes through this whole story of how mankind is now being subje subjected to this notion, and maybe by our own choice, right? Again, in the context of this mental matrix, being subjected to this notion of no longer just selective disclosure, but selective exposure. I can see now, based on your habits and everything else, what things are going to elicit the types of responses that give you the most dopamine? So big tech is now the largest drug dealer in the country, yeah. in the world, right? They can determine, they don't even have to have fields. They don't have to like plant seeds of marijuana or anything. They can just play with your own dopamine Definitely. and they can create and foster your own dopamine and by the way, why do they want that dopamine? They want that because the more dopamine you get, the more engagement. So hmm, yeah. let's make sure that you only go to websites or let's make sure you only get exposed to chat rooms that are aligned to your way of thinking. Because as soon as you hear someone else say something you also agree with, you're yeah. like, wow, yeah. I'm right. Right. And we're all narcissists in a way. Look, oh, they yeah, all we all have a little bit in us or a lot. Look how many likes I have. And with that, then now they can get us on these apps longer because we're like, wow, we get addicted yeah. to, look how many likes this guy. Wow, they like me. They agree with me. And this selective exposure is a, a form of mass propaganda and manipulation. But maybe- experience what we're experiencing right now to the highest degree because it's the most we've ever had of this data manipulation. But the way I look at this, is it's also a doorway to probably an entirely new way of humanity interacting with each other and for themselves. For the first time in human history, 
Mankind is actually creating value without toil. Think about that. So each of us, just through our own habits and behaviors, in our social time or whatever, are creating a ton of valuable data that's, unfortunately for us, getting monetized by somebody else. So the original producer is left out of it. It's a veritable matrix, except that instead of providing energy like a battery to the matrix, we're providing information to the matrix, Hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And and that's then centrally controlled by an oligopolistic group of five or six companies, really. Yeah, exactly. That have control over that narrative. Yeah. And they're looking at the world from their own advantage point, not vantage point. So when you look at it in that context, I look at it and say, well, geez, if this is the first time in human history where mankind's creating value without actually having to toil for that value, is this not a potential opportunity for human beingness over human doingness? Is this, we've been human doings for the last few hundred years. Can we now create something? Is there a possibility of a universal basic income that is truly sustainable? And not built on a redistribution model, but rather, if we all understood how valuable our own data is, could we not monetize that on our, cell, on our own? But what's the mechanism to be able to do that? Mm-hmm. Well, that's what my companies have worked to build, which is like quantum-resistant VPN technology where you can encrypt all of your data and then sell it if you want or never sell it. It's yours to sell. You are the commodity. You are your own system. You are your own ecosystem. Data is an extension of who we are. Think about that. It's my social profile is is now part of who I am, right? And if you're going to take that away because I could be deplatformed, then I cannot be the same type of, or could not have the same type of experiences I once had. You know, if you're going to take away my soapbox by deplatforming me, because my narrative doesn't align with yours. Yeah then that could cause severe distress for me, right? But I believe there should be a paradigm where people should be able to, I believe in freedom of speech, and I believe that you know governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. I believe in the, the same principles that went into the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that to ensure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers, just powers, from the consent of the governed. This is something that I think we've sort of lost. And Clearly. now Clearly, what's Because there's not consent. <laughs> that's right. There's not the consent. And or not a, powers, not a conscious consent. Not a conscious consent. And the just powers are no longer just. Yeah. And that's what I think a lot of people are going through right now. But I do see... Amid all of this, a kernel, I see a silver lining. And the silver lining is, is that there will be transformation coming. There will be change coming. And that change is badly needed. And it's going to be fitting with the new cycle that we've just entered into, right? Yeah. Which is you know, right. lovingly referred to as the age of Aquarius. Yeah. And, and I think that's the shift, is the transcendence of duality into this new age of acceptance, technology, um, a frequency, understanding of frequency and vibration. Oh my God. Yeah. My opinion of why we were here on this, why are we here? What is the point was to experience duality. And then I had an event happen that was really difficult and really hard for me. 
in that experience, because I just thought sort of duality were two different things. It was just like the good and the bad. And when I experienced that, it broke me open to really, really, really happy, joyful, positive things, as well as the experience of what happened. And at that point, I realized that duality was a circle, like because they were connected. They weren't two separate things. They weren't even the ends of the spec. They were like connected. They're inseparable from each other. But now we're moving to a third paradigm. Just like binary code is going from, you know, standard computing models into quantum computing. We're going from ones and zeros in binary code to a third position now, which is the X position, the superposition. It can be either a one or a zero, right? And I think this is part and parcel of how society is transforming, right? And it's often represented by a dragon in esotericism. This notion of this wheel of time, the Ouroboros, the same realization that you just had, the snake eating its tail or the dragon eating its tail. Mm-hmm. No, you could look at duality like, you know, arrogance and humility or like, you know, dark and light. And what we realize actually, when you start to get deeper into it, we're saying that, you know, women are the negative pole and men are the positive pole. You know, I kind of come back to the question of which way does the earth spin? Does it spin counterclockwise or is it clockwise? And actually the truth is that depends. It depends on your point of advantage. If you look at it from the North Pole, it spins counterclockwise. If you look at it from the South Pole, it spins clockwise. The reason why we say it spins counterclockwise is because most of the learning institutions on the planet are the Northern Hemisphere. So it's been their advantage position. But actually, the, who's to say what, which one is the North and which one is the South Pole? What is the top side? In space, it doesn't really matter, right? So it's a yeah. different way of looking at things. We can be stuck on this notion. And I use this example all the time of a cylinder. If I said to somebody, you know, I'm holding a cylinder and it's this flat circle right here. And to your perspective, looking at me, and it casts a shadow on the wall behind me. And what you see is the shadow of a circle. Or from the person sitting, you know, on the other side of me, this direction, you might actually see I'm holding a square or a rectangle because actually what I'm truly holding is a cylinder. It's both. So neither of them are wrong. Their answers are just incomplete about what it actually is. And what I have is the higher perspective of knowing that there's an additional dimension in three dimensions that says that it's neither only a circle nor a square or rectangle, but it's actually both. And their answers are simply incomplete because it's a cylinder. So do you, do you think that it's actually, is it incomplete or incompatible with new, with a new next level existence, frequency, dimension, um, awareness. Like I wonder, uh, think about like Newtonian physics, quantum physics, or, and how math evolves and how sometimes it's just not compatible anymore. And I wonder if as we expand and grow our consciousness and, um, you know, reach a next level of existence and awareness, do we actually create essentially like a whole new paradigm of, of math and of reality? Yes. Um, And each time we do, it provides another axis of reference. So let's say we have an X axis, right? Like a horizontal plane. 
then we have a y-axis, and now we're gonna create depth to that. So now we're gonna take this two-dimensional view of a square, a rectangle, and a circle and say, no, 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 let's look at this in a third dimension, and it's gonna have a depth perspective, so we need a z-axis now. So you got a line mm -hmm. this way, a line this way, and then a line kind of coming down diagonal this way, mm -hmm. right? And as we go to higher dimensions, each one of these additional dimensions is simply a 90 degree offset from the others. So you can continue to add dimensions. Well, if we lived in a two dimensional world and an apple fell through our world as Flatlanders, Carl Sagan does a great review on this on, on uh, YouTube. But if an apple fell through our world, what we would see, we wouldn't see an apple. What we'd see is sequential slices of an apple falling through our world. Well, first of all, we'd also have to realize we don't have time, right? There's not a time perspective in that world in two dimensions. Everything's right. fixed, right? As soon as you have motion and mm -hmm. frequency, you now have time. So now that Z-axis mm -hmm. creates a spinning vortex, right, of rotation. That becomes the fourth dimension. So we have three dimensions of space, three dimensions of time. And therefore, when you look at it, each one you have to see your point of reference. Are you able to perceive in a higher perspective and higher dimension? Because by the way, unless you have experienced that higher dimension, you can't even use words to describe that higher dimension. How would you even describe depth if you'd never experienced depth? Right. So this is the challenge that we have. And, and I believe that those things that we cannot yet see or experience, like dark matter and dark energy, yeah. They're probably just in higher dimension. Yeah. You don't understand it yet. Maybe yeah. what we called random before is not really random at all. Maybe it's just our inability to perceive God's encrypted pattern. Sure. Because or we don't have the right vantage point. Maybe it isn't chaos. Maybe it is organized in a different and at that's a different level. Position. Everything, I believe, is organized. It's just our boundary condition of what we call entropy is really the end of knowledge and the beginning of ignorance. And as we grow and expand our conscious awareness, we push that boundary condition out farther and farther and farther, and it grows at about the speed of light. Because maybe the speed of light isn't really the speed of light. Maybe it's the speed of our perception. Ha! There were some words that came into my awareness, and I was listening to something that had to do with time, and the words that came in, and then they started talking about it, um, was that, time is entropy. Yeah. And that I wonder if time is just some word we give, we, we think it's this way and that way, right? But it's actually just like a measure we use of entropy. Well, words matter. And if we take the word time, so in Greek language, um, many, many words have mirror reflective properties. So their anagram actually has a meaning. Like the word aeon, which is a period of time, like 2,160 years, would be referred to as an aeon, right? Usually. Is in that what we would call like an eon, like eons eon, of time? Yeah, it's, it's the Greek spelling A-E-O-N. We've okay. anglicized it to E-O-N, right? Okay. But it's the same thing. Okay. So an aeon backwards is a no way. Now, aeon also means the aeons in Gnosticism also referred to gods, right? The gods of Gnosticism are aeons but it also can mean I am, right? So what is no way? No way, the Greek word, which is the just written backwards, right? It's just the yeah. of aeon is no way. 
And that means, I think, from noetic sciences. So wait, now you're telling me that aeon is I am and no way is I think, I think, therefore I am? Deep, right? It's a deep thought. Yeah, so you got A-E-O-N versus N-O-E-A, right? I think, I am. So Rene Descartes gave us that, great philosopher and mathematician and, and physicist as well, but also someone who believed very, very strongly in the esoteric and the mystic sciences, right? Maybe spirituality is just the science we don't understand yet in higher dimension. Totally agree with that. Believe that for a long time. So now let's look at the word time. Yeah. What is time backwards? E? Emit. 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 So what is the term that we use to reference light? Oh, we so emit light. Emits light. The word laser is light amplification of stimulated emission of radiation. What is the opposite of radiation emission? It's gravity and time. So you have light and you have dark, mm -hmm. right? What we've been referring to, sometimes people refer to it as entropy, this word I just don't really love, right? And that really just means confusion or chaos or something we don't understand. Right. But that's because we don't really understand time. Because... Mm -hmm. The doorway into the next higher dimension is transcendence and understanding that all dimensions of time exist simultaneously. I mean, you can't deny that time and gravity, even the, the most reductionistic of physicists would say that gravity and time are directly linked together. They must be, right? And why would they be linked together? You've seen the movie Interstellar. And in the film Interstellar- My favorite movie in the whole world. Right. You've seen the part where they land on this planet that's close to Gargantua in the black hole. And because yeah. the gravitational force there is so strong, they're there only 45 minutes and yeah. 23 years pass on their ship, which is not that far away. Right. Right. So they come back to the ship. The guy's in cryogenic freeze. He's been there for 23 years waiting for them. Right. Because there's something called time dilation as a result of gravitational force. Right. Of that, the gravity is causing this differential in time. Time is different on the planet Jupiter because gravity is stronger than it is on Earth. That's why their Jovian year, you know, their cycle around the sun, if you were living there, might actually be closer to the 11.86 years that it is for us, which is 4,320 days. So when you look at this, and by the way, that relates also to the 43,200 mile radius that Jupiter has. Really? Same 432. Hmm. Interesting number synchronicities there. You'll find that every planet in the solar system actually relates to the speed of light. Even the speed of our Earth going around the sun is exactly 10,000 times slower than the speed of light. Interesting. 18 miles per second. Um, I'm kind of obsessed with fractals, which I feel like is also like is partly patterns because I really wonder about what reality is and what we are and what we're doing and all these things. And, and I, I'm also friends with Nassim. So like, I've well, also heard his, very well. hearing, you know, from him and in all of my research and curiosities and listening to you too, this week, it really kind of drove it home. 
it seems as though, like, I wonder if you can actually find a pattern in everything. Is there anything that doesn't have a pattern that correlates? And if that's true, then one, what are those things that don't correlate or don't have a pattern? And if, and if it is true, then what does that say about our reality and our consciousness? Because it feels like there's something else. But yet when you think in the, when I think in terms of fractals and patterns, I think we're just a pattern and like all this, this, all this, this reality, this, this whole thing is just a feedback loop. Like Nassim says, it's just a feedback loop. And so what makes it unique or special? Cause there's something that feels unique and special from a consciousness standpoint. So I know I just kind of said a lot of words and I'm going to shut up. But those are my random thoughts about fractals and our reality and what the hell's really going on. I believe, and I don't, I, you know, it'd be impossible to prove this statement. So I'm not going to try to claim that it is absolute fact, but I fundamentally believe that there are only patterns. And because of dimension of perspective that we can perceive, our limitation to see the depth of those patterns, mm. just like our ability to zoom out from the tree that we're standing too close to to see the forest. Yeah. Or maybe mm. we're so close to the tree, we can't see the forest. And maybe we can't see even the, the town that it's close to or adjacent to, or mm. the planet that it's on, right? I, I think of this as like different stages of dimensional experience. Let's say you're a grasshopper, you live in a field, you know, and you think that your universe is that field. You don't know anything more than that. That's your whole life, your whole life and gestation and everything. Your whole life, you know, timeline is so truncated, super short. But to you, it seems like a lifetime. It's all based on your perspective. So then you die and maybe you, you go and you come back in another life form. Maybe now you're a monkey. You live in a forest or a jungle mm -hmm. or something. Now you've got expanded flora and fauna, a diversification of life forms that you didn't experience when you were a grasshopper. And then now you still don't know, however, that you might across a hill, you know, let's say you're in a jungle in Costa Rica. There's a whole town and city over there with human beings. Those human beings might be as far away because that could be in your context, light years away from you in distance. Mm -hmm. Right. And then you die and you come back and you come back as someone who lives in rural America, who's never traveled anywhere. And yeah who's watched things, you know, has watched about going fishing in Alaska and seeing the sky, how beautiful it is. But until they actually go there in person, they don't really know what it's like to be in Alaska. And then you might come back again, this time in a form that you're well-traveled, like you've been all over the world, you know, different cultures, you've learned different languages, you have different perspectives. You have the perspective of time and history, maybe you didn't have in the past life. And each time you're up-leveling consciousness and you're getting more and more experiences of diversification. That diversity, why is it then not standing to reason that the next experience you might have might be with extraterrestrials? As you up-level your dimensional experience. And I think that's, maybe those extraterrestrials were here all along. And they've just been in higher dimension all along. We talk, keep talking about a contact experience. Maybe that contact is already happening with millions of people on planet Earth today who are experiencing high dimensional communication. 
And I can tell you, I firmly believe that. I've experienced it myself. So the point being that I think humankind is going through this transformation stage right now where we're up-leveling consciousness. And the most important aspect is to learn to transcend all the constructs of this world. If you want to continue to be in this context, the way that it's always been, and expect a different result than what you've gotten, then that's just the definition of insanity. Not me talking about <laughs> extraterrestrials, right? Absolutely. And, and that's what we've ex been experiencing, patterns over patterns over patterns. And the universe keeps throwing it at us until we finally wake up. It's like, yo, dude, I've been throwing you messages all along. Wake up. What I would say is the spiritual awakening process, you know, and it's not woke. Woke, if you're still in the mode of judging, that's not awakened. Because it's like religion. Religion, organized religion, tends to teach judgment. Spirituality is teaching, yo, dude, you got to look within. It's your own issues. You're responsible for your own experience. You're not a victim. If you believe you're a victim, you're just going to continue to be victimized in your world. Yeah. That's the, lens. that's the lens that you're going to experience. And I'm not meaning to belittle what other people have experienced than, you know, terrible crimes and everything. But I will say this, that 90% plus of what we experience is not in fact what we experienced, is what we believe we experienced. Yeah. And this happens day in and day out. I'm not saying there aren't bad people that do horrifically bad things in the world. But what I am saying is that the more we judge those things, the more they will come into our field. A hundred percent. What we judge, what we, what we judge is essentially what we deny and our reality is trying to show us where we're not whole. Um, you taught, you said that you've had experiences. I'm really curious what those experiences have been um, with interdimensional beings. I want I to start by saying we don't, tend to judge or we don't tend to experience the world as it is we tend to experience the world as we are right and by the same token i went with nasim to egypt in 2017 he invited me to uh, to give a presentation in like a keynote position which was very kind of him to present on mathematics because i had started to you know, really get deep into math. I went through a, a very difficult situation, a crisis situation, where it caused me to, to really question my objective reality. As we go through the peak of our own narcissism, that is usually the doorway to spiritual awakening. Because we realize something is not working right. right? And, and maybe what I'm experiencing is self-imposed and self-inflicted. So you start to get to that stage. And so what it did is it caused me, I experienced betrayal. I think, you know, I came here, one of the principles I wanted to learn in this life was unconditional love. So if you wanted to come here to learn a principle of unconditional love, you will experience its opposite. Its opposite is betrayal. Mm. It's conditional love, right? You don't feel betrayed by somebody you didn't care about. Yeah, you don't you even notice. By someone you loved. Yeah. You don't even notice if you didn't yeah. care about them. Yeah. And, and so I went through a very, very extreme case of, of betrayal. And it was very difficult for me to synthesize and process to the point where I'm like, wait a minute, is all my objective reality totally bullshit? 
I need to go back to the queen of the sciences, which is mathematics. And I want to understand and question every single notion of mathematics I'd previously had. Does one plus one really equal two? Or is it something altogether different? I actually reconstructed mathematics on that basis. And out of that process, I discovered a prime number pattern and published it. And every time I've looked for patterns, patterns exist. So basically, you could think of it as we could look at our own intelligence as a species based on the, the degree to which we perceive patterns versus chaos. Uh. So think about that for a moment. You could call that like a, a collective conscious or a consciousness quotient. And you're talking about, so this is the way I'm receiving it, perceiving it, is that being able to see patterns would be like your own patterns. Like someone that's at the brink of wanting to feel unconditional love will get a pattern of conditional love. Yes. And then eventually you go, why the fuck am I only getting conditional love? All I want is unconditional love. And so you, you notice that pattern in your reality. Yes. You're saying? Because you continue to judge conditional love. So you will continue to experience it. It will be thrown at you in your life over and over and over again until you finally stop judging conditional love and accept it. And once you accept it, then you've now learned the notion of unconditional love. Because the thing that you came to this earth and you thought, I'm going to be here to learn. I'm here to learn and experience unconditional love. Well, when that is your desire, the thing that you desire will always be elusive to you. For people that want money, the ones that are always feeling poor and scarce will never find it. They'll never find it. It's like they'll be searching for it and searching for it. And even when they get it, they lose it like that. It's like it falls like like water through their fingers. Yeah. Whereas as soon as you instead decide, I'm already abundant, I'm already wealthy, that's the mindset that I embody. It's the watch. No longer judge. Yeah. And no longer judge the scarcity you see in others or in yourself, then you will experience abundance. The universe wants to give us as soon as we learn to accept those things that we are triggered by. So whenever we get triggered and everyone today in today's society is always completely like, I'm offended. Oh my God, I'm offended. Everything's an offense. You can't use that word. What the hell? That's why people like Jordan Peterson have taken off so crazy, you know, in society because he's like, no, this is bullshit. Stop it. And everyone's like, that resonates. Holy crap. Right. It's like, if you're offended constantly, that's your problem. That is your problem. Get over it, dude. Like, constantly offended, then you you are the hammer that's, you know, the proverbial hammer constantly looking for the perennial nail. (laughs) And then everything looks like a nail. And by the way, if you think that works for you, then go for it. But by the way, you're not separate from me. You're just a reflection. Exactly. And I have to learn how to accept that too, that not everyone is going to accept. It's, it, it is what it is. And being accepting of that non-acceptance is learning the love and acceptance. It's the same thing. So you asked the question about you know, higher dimensional experiences. So I gave a speech for Nassim at this conference and it was on mathematics and the language of mathematics because as I was reconstructing math, 
which is this very objective science, right? The most objective, but by the way, also the most esoteric. What is numerology? Hmm. Yeah. So again, it's the circle. Mathematics <laughs> is the most objective science amongst reductionists, but at the same time, amongst esotericists, it's the most esoteric. <laughs> How does that work? We're seeing numbers. Oh, wait, we call these angel numbers or numerology. Numerology is crazy accurate. If you get into that, it's like it takes astrology almost like to another level of detail and dimension. I could put axes and say, okay, there's astrology as a Z axis. Numerology is a Y axis. A Z axis would be alchemy. Whoa. Whoa, totally. Right? So yeah. when you start thinking of it in those terms, I'm giving a presentation in Egypt in 2017 in October. It was right after the big eclipse that was in, I think it was August or September of that year, which was a big awakening eclipse. And I remember I live in Orange County, California, and um, the percent of totality, remember that term totality, the amount mm -hmm. of coverage you get uh, on the moon over the sun to create the corona, right? Uh -huh. corona. Uh -huh. So corona has been a word that's been in the consciousness for quite some time now, isn't it? It just means crown. Oh, I was going to ask, what does it mean? Crown. Corona means crown. So wait, coronavirus is the crown virus? Oh, is it a virus? We're at the seventh chakra? Are we at yeah. the seventh chakra? Yeah. Whoa. Whoa. Right. That's, deep. That's deep. It's like, wait, it's a virus? Spirituality is a virus? Ooh, interesting. Or maybe it's a different way of looking at things, right? So here I was in, um, in Egypt and I'm giving a presentation on math as a language, language of the universe. And at the end, I was only supposed to talk for like two hours and it ended up being like four hours because people were asking tons of questions. I was stunned to find half the room in tears. Oh yeah. man. Okay. I've been there. I've been at his, I've been there for a week long and I, I'll tell you my experience at the end, but yep, I don't, I'm not surprised. Half the room in tears. And it was fascinating to me because I did not expect that. I'm like, okay, I'm teaching about math as a language, but it was almost like you saw that movie Contact. Yeah, oh, yeah, of oh, course, sorry, one of my sorry. favorites. Uh, Arrival, Arrival. I've the, seen that too. Arrival with um, the redhead actress. Right, Amy Adams. Amy Adams, yeah, she did. Yep, great. I just saw that actually. She's a linguist, right? And she's brought in to like communicate with these seven-legged like heptopods that are transcending time. Yes. Remember that was sort of the whole story. Of the yes. And, and nobody could understand their language. It was like this, these shapes, it's like a geometric language. And then she had to learn how to decipher yeah. it as a linguist. And in the process, as she learned that language, she transcended time. Yeah. There's a deep story within that. For herself though, right? For yeah. herself, like somehow learning the language. Because remember, in the very beginning, she kept having these flashbacks. Yeah, exactly. And you realize later, they weren't flashbacks. They were flash forwards. Flash forwards. Right? And it was like, exactly. wow. wow. Right? Wow. So the whole thing was they had to come back in time. They're from the future, come back in time to correct something, you know, for retro causality and grandfather paradox and all that stuff that goes along with it. So that, you know, humanity could have this information and help them in their hour of need, right? And it was sort of a fascinating premise, but, you know, she had this ability as a linguist to, to learn this language. And so when I presented in Egypt, 
I presented math as a language, that we're the, the verbs and nouns and syntax of the language can be identified as the nouns are just the numbers. The verbs are the mathematical constants that have ing appended on the end of them, which are infinite tails of irrationality. And they're verbs of action, like I'm going to take, uh -huh. I'm going to circle, right? A circle, a diameter, and that's a verb of action, circling the diameter. Yeah. Therefore, exactly. it never ends. It's like in French, we say, I speak eight languages, and je suis en train de, I am in the train of doing something. It means I'm not finished with it. It's an incomplete action. The circle never completes, right? It's infinite. It's the same concept. And then I looked at it from the perspective also that how is the syntax arranged? It's arranged in overlapping, intersecting circles that inscribe geometric forms within them. And those are the sentences. So as we start looking at math as a language of communication with the universe, we can start to communicate differently with the universe. And for people that were there, some of them were like, this is like a contact or like a, a rival experience for us. Well, that night, we went into the Great Pyramid. And after we were in the Great Pyramid, and I laid in the sarcophagus and found the resonance frequency, and Nassim did not let me leave. He's like, you got to stay in here and do this, because even though my assistant was sick and she wasn't feeling well, the energy in the pyramids really... Have you been there before? Yeah, I have. Yeah. So the energy is really powerful. Yeah, and super we were, high frequency. We were going through like a whole, it was like something, there's a book called uh, Initiation by Elizabeth Hake, mm -hmm. and worth reading. And this whole process, it's a hermetic mm -hmm. process. The pyramid is an ascension device. It's about expanding awareness, expanding consciousness, and remembering who you are. That's what I really believe it's about. And so I laid in there, I came out of that, and I ended up going outside with a bunch of my friends and colleagues that were there, about 40 or 50 of us. And we're laying on the, you know, the limestone, which is in front of the Great Pyramid. We could still hear people in there like making noise and chanting because it's like a giant speaker, right? And it's yeah, like totally. one or I mean, two in the morning. It's like acoustically designed. Absolutely. And we're laying out there on the plateau. There were no drugs involved, not at least for me, but there's like 40 people there. And I look up and I say, do you guys see what I see? And there were about 50 to 75 ships above the Giza Plateau doing formational shifts and changes. Wow. Right? They were like these blue-green orb, large orbs, and doing these formations right above the Giza Plateau. And all of us saw it. Do you think you saw them because they showed up because of the frequency? Or do you think you saw them because of your frequency? I think it was the latter. I think they're here all the time, all around. And it's only a function of our own frequency mm -hmm. that either allows us or disallows us to see it and experience yeah. it. Yeah. Man, I've asked so many super smart people starting with Neil deGrasse Tyson, I was like, do you think that maybe we can't find extraterrestrials? Like we don't see them because we're looking for exactly like us. Like, are we supposed to be like, maybe they're not just like this, you know, which would also imply maybe they're dimensionally in a different dimension that we don't have the, we can only see in here in such a narrow spectrum of the full spectrum. What makes you think that they're not there just because we don't see them in this sort of like through this lens? 
You know, I think, again, we see the world from our own point of advantage. And the world and the academic community has become one that really sees spirituality and science is juxtaposed against one another when actually the two are completely married to each other and the circle that's right it's a it's just a a a narrow way of perceiving the world and universe and i respect neil degrasse tyson i think he's a very smart guy but he's reductionistically smart and he's he's married to a lower dimension of thought yeah before he he lacks the wisdom and perspective to see in higher dimension and that is just the nature of reductionism. That doesn't mean to say that he won't necessarily, eventually I believe everyone does, but there are certain people that are more married to the lower dimensional perspectives and time is no different. Once we start to learn the Buddhistic Taoist uh, approaches to overcoming our attachment to duality, we start to experience time differently. Now that wasn't my only experience. I've had many experiences. Right. And and actually, it started when I was 11 years old. I was 11 years old. I lived in Rendlesham Forest. And there was a very famous incident of UFOs that were recorded by the U.S. military that were basically referred to as Arcturian, who were future humans that came to visit. And there were many eyewitnesses to this. One of them was a fellow by the name of Jim Penniston. A book was written by Gary Osborne. I lived right on that forest. And I had experiences. It was right after Christmas on the 26th and the 28th of December in 1980. And here I was living there because my father was in the military. And this happened on a U.S. Air Force base. So I had many experiences like this. It's always been in higher dimension. They've been here all along. Mm -hmm. It's not. it's, It's us that cannot see. So this is why I say that a new form of quotient of intelligence, maybe from a universal perspective, really should be our ability to see in higher dimension. What is seeing in higher dimension? It's being able to make sense of patterns that exist beyond the normal framework of the dimension that you're within. Mm -hmm. So our ability to perceive pattern versus randomness might actually be the definition of levels of conscious quotient. I like that. What about what is the what is the role of frequency in that and sound? Because definitely in the king's chamber and in the pyramid, it the frequency is really high, really high in the king's chamber. I'm not like I don't feel people's feelings, but I can feel frequency, and that's what I noticed in there was just just super high vibrational frequency. And it looks very acoustic in there, like walking up the main shaft up. It's like staged ceiling yeah, that goes like up. Gables, and right. there, there are gables that go, there's like seven gables. And then right. you know, you've got, if you go to the, the Red Pyramid um, yeah. in, in Deshur. I've been there too. There's 13 gables, right? 13 gables. So you've got like kind oh, of yeah. these- like seven and 13. Oh yeah. I mean, we toned in all of them. We toned in the sarcophaguses. We toned in, in many sarcophaguses as well as in the red pyramid and the great pyramid. I mean, we toned for an hour or two while we were in there as everyone had their chance of laying in the sarcophagus. And I just wonder, and I also wonder about the conspiracy around the tuning frequency of 440 and 432 Hertz and just what 
what effect that has on us, but how much you think that your tuning not only comes from figuring, finding patterns, but to also put yourself in an environment where a pattern can, you can implement a pattern or you can stay with a pattern. Like I think about my house and having EMF reducers in the house and I play Hertz frequencies at night next to me. Like that's like, I, I, I'm, I care about that. And I feel like music is another vein of that. So what level of the, of us being able to see patterns, but then also what role does frequency play in our ability to shift dimensions? It plays a huge role. And actually when you understand that the relationship of 432, so you talked about 432, I just told you Jupiter is 43,200 mile radius. Oh yeah. I told you that the Jovian year is 4,320 days. Right. Interesting. Uh, the radius of the sun is 432,000 miles. It's 10 times the size of Jupiter's radius. Right. 432 squared is the speed of light in miles per second. The pyramid's base, the Great Pyramid's base, in measured in something called the Royal Egyptian Cubit is 440. And that's actually an interesting number. It matches up with the tuning standard for A, Mm. in our musical tuning today. And that musical tuning today is also referred to as equal temperament, but tuned to a 440 Hertz. Yeah. When you actually notice, and I, I went with the sim also to Mexico, we were both made shaman of the Toltec Indian tribe, right? Cool. That, that takes care of the guardians of the Teotihuacan plateau. Oh. And I, I hosted the days in Teotihuacan. So I did a lot of mathematical work while I was there for residence with them a few years ago, did a lot of mathematical work. And I found some really interesting and astounding correlations between two places on earth that should not be related at all to each other. Teotihuacan and the Giza Plateau. Now, the first most obvious reference is they're both matching the belt of Orion, the constellation. Okay. That's interesting. So you've got these three pyramids that are kind of the main part of the structure. There's other structures there, just like there are on, on the Giza Plateau, but they're all matching this kind of belt position of yeah. Orion. So that's kind of strange, okay? Number mm -hmm. two is if you look at the base of the Pyramid of the Sun in Teotihuacan, Mexico, it turns out to be the exact same base width as the Great Pyramid. Huh. What a coincidence. And huh. the height of the pyramid is 216 feet in Mexico. What a coincidence also. And is that also a coincidence then that Menkare Pyramid, the smallest pyramid on the Giza Plateau is likewise 216 feet high. Hmm, hmm that's interesting. So, and how many inches are there in 216 feet? 2,592 inches that's the length of the precession of equinox divided by 10 25,920 years so but wait the mexicans right that somehow the people the indigenous peoples there that built the teotihuacan plateau somehow use the same measurement systems that the future uses that didn't even exist at that time how do you connect those dots and how does that relate back over to the giza plateau hmm what about the Pyramid of the Moon in Mexico. The Pyramid of the Moon, its base is the same height as the Great Pyramid. So wait, the Pyramid of the Sun 
has a base that's the same as the Great Pyramid, and the Pyramid of the Moon has a base that's the same as the height of the Great Pyramid. This seems awfully coincidental, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, well, there's just too many times the same numbers show up, and these are ran different places, different civilizations, different timelines. Yet, you know, it would just add one more stone and it doesn't add up. So let's assume we put in place a hypothetical measurement. And that hypothetical measurement tends to be this convergence of all these different base widths and heights and everything. It comes out to 432 okay. for the base of the Great Pyramid. This would be a long cubit. 432 long cubits is the base. Mm. That's measured in long cubits. And then that means that the height to the center of the Great Pyramid is 137.5098, which is the golden angle. That's the golden angle. So then double that, you've got 275 long cubits. And then you notice that that relates to 432. Menkari, the smallest pyramid, is 216 feet. And by the way, its base width is 172.8 which is exactly four or eight times 432 divided by 10. So again, it's the same 432 Patterns. You're a pattern maker. That's right. And You're a pattern realizer. So then the height of Menkare relates back to 432. It's just half of 432, just like the Pyramid of the Sun is the same 216. Then let's look at Khafre. Khafre is the middle pyramid. A lot of people think it's the tallest. It's because it's on higher ground. It's like 33 feet higher ground than the Great Pyramid's on. Um, so it looks like it's higher, but it's not really a bigger structure. It's 471 feet approximately, or 144 meters. So it's exactly 144 meters, and the base width is 216 meters. There it is again. So wait, Menkari is a foot measurement. Khafre is a meter measurement. And the Great Pyramid is a long cubit measurement, all relational to 432. So what is this telling us? And you can check the math. The math is the math. It's the beauty of math. What it's telling us, I believe, is that this higher dimensional perspective, this frequency, and is very much tied to how we perceive the world around us. This is the detractus. The detractus of Pythagoras is based on four dots, followed by three dots, followed by two dots, and one dot. Four, three, two, one. Huh. Four, three, two, one. And what does that come out to? Four times three times two times one equals 24, which is what the prime number pattern is based on. And four plus three plus two plus one equals 10. So now you've got one or 10 and four, you know, four, three, two, one is coming out to 24. These numbers are all fundamental. The most important, what's the most important mathematical constant, you know? Pi. You might say golden, pi, right? Pi. Golden ratio, golden ratio. Golden ratio, pretty important. I'd say pi is definitely, in the math community, pi probably trumps it, right? Pi probably trumps it. The Speed of light, I don't know. The second most important mathematical constant would probably be either the golden ratio or maybe it's actually the Euler number. So the Euler number is what controls interest, compound interest. So when you go to a bank and you get a loan 
and they issue compound interest for that, no matter how much or how many times they compound that interest, it hits a limit. They'll never be able to go beyond 2.718. So one is the principal of your loan, right? It's the amount of money, right? That is the loan value. But if they compounded it like at the maximum number of times possible, the return would only hit a maximum of 2.718. And all banks use this math. It's the, it's the governor of all wave and expansion of exponential growth. So the governor of the universe is really the speed of light. We think about light speed as like the speed limit of the universe, but what's the speed limit of the speed limit? It's actually the Euler number. I've never heard about the Euler number. I heard about you saying that in an interview and I was like, what, I've never heard of this. Yeah, and what's crazy about it too is Euler wasn't even the guy who discovered it. It was discovered, that's a guy by the name of Leonard Euler, who's a Swiss mathematician, but the guy who discovered it was Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton discovered it because of his work to understand the Great Pyramid. And the Euler number was related to the Royal Egyptian cubit, which is 1.718 feet. If you add one foot to that, so the cubit plus the foot equals the Euler number. So six feet, which is a fathom, six feet fathom, minus the Euler number equals the meter. What? Mm. There's like, order and pattern to all of this. There's not supposed to be order and pattern to this. You're telling me that six feet, which was a standard unit of measure of a fathom, measuring depth, how do I fathom the universe, right? Which might actually just be father and mother. Mater, mater, fodder. So fathom, F-A-T-H-O-M, mother backwards, right? Holy shnikes. So you take six feet, you subtract the Euler number, you get the meter or six feet minus the meter equals the Euler number? Really? And where does the word Euler come from in the first place? Euler in German means owl. Well, guess how much an owl's head will turn on its axis? Because you know owls can turn their heads all the way around. About 271 degrees, which is the same number. Interesting, isn't it? 271 or 272 degrees is the turn of the axis of this owl's head. So then they named it the Euler number. It actually makes it easier to remember the Euler number. So, and actually what is an owl synonymous with? Wisdom. Is the thing that makes squares, scalar waves, it makes compression. And by the way, Euler to the power of pi equals one over 432. It really makes me wonder what we, what is this reality? When it's all just pattern, I really wonder what the true significance of anything is. Maybe it's that everything is super significant, but I really wonder, like, are we just some, we're just a pattern? Yeah, it's like, are we just an AI? Yeah, I, I, maybe. I mean, I wonder that too. Are we a simulation? You know, that's for sure a question. You could make strong arguments to that effect, and I wouldn't be the first. I believe fundamentally, again, you have to come back to what it is that we're here to learn. And, and putting yourself in the context of those other frequencies, I think can be a powerful thing. I, I wanted to look at it geometrically and said, okay, if we listen to 432 Hertz music in just tuning, Pythagorean tuning, which was developed also by Pythagoras that long ago, he said A should be 432. Is 440 a little out of tune? Like that's the conspiracy that I heard is that 440 is not as in resonance with the natural frequencies. And so is 432, is 440 
an out-of-tune frequency? I would say it's out of consciousness. Okay, because that the, the conspiracy goes to like Germany and like changing yeah, yeah. the tuning to 440, it kind of muted all the people, it made them a little bit less uh, reactive and energetic. The, the reason rational thought behind it is that all geometry, so I looked at this purely from a geometric perspective. So if you look at the geometry of every polygon, so let's just start by looking at this. So what's the first polygon? It's a triangle, right? And what's the sum of angles of a triangle? It's 180 degrees. So then what's the next one? It would be a square. So you go from three sides to four sides. And what is the sum of angles of a square? 360 degrees. So it's two times 180. What's the sum of angles of a pentagon, which would be the five-sided object? 540. So you've got, you know, five angles and each one is at 108 degrees, so 540. So then you go to the next one, which is a hexagon. Hexagon is 720. Okay, so you've got 120 degrees each and you've got six of them, so now you're at 720. You go to an octagon and an octagon is going to have 1080. 1080 is the sum of its angles, right? So 135 degrees times eight. So you're now at 1080. And then you end up at the next one, which would be, you know, a, a, a nine-sided or a nonagon. Each one of these, if you add them all up, what are the sum of all these numbers? So you've got 180, you've got 360, you've got 540, you've got 720, you've got 1080. What's the common thread that connects all these numbers? Something very interesting. Well, 1 plus 8 for 180 plus 0 equals 9. 3 plus 6 plus 0 for 360 for the square equals 9. 540, 5 plus 4 plus 0 equals 9. Nikola Tesla. 720, Tesla. 7 plus 2 plus 0 equals 9. 369. 369. Right? 1080, 1 plus 0 plus 8 plus 0 equals 9. And you'll find that every geometric form, without exception, infinitely, as you go up and up and up, will always sum to 9 without exception. Now, that means to say that since music is just the geometry that we experience with our ears, and geometry is just the music we experience with our eyes, then shouldn't it stand to reason that there should be a similar convention for music? Now, let's try this for a second. What if we convert those polygonal shapes, those basic polygonal shapes, or polyhedra, we could go to polyhedra, it works also. Let's say we start with the note and we tone it at 180 hertz instead of 180 degrees. That would be an F sharp. We go to the next note. It's also an F sharp, 360, because that's just doubling an octave. And we go to the next note, 540 hertz. That becomes a C sharp. Then we go to the next note. And let's play the next note. What's the next note? It's going to be 720. That's another F sharp. Oh, let's yeah, go to the just... next note. And now we're at 1080, and that's another C-sharp. And as you go to the next ones and follow that, this whole thing will make a perfect F-sharp major chord in And they connect with the harmony. chakras, too. Because as I have behind me all kinds of crystals, crystal bowls, they, I would listen to them as like got in, you know, like literally got into a meditative state, let these bowls play to me, and I would say kind of yes or no and i would just give feedback i didn't know what to do but i was like oh wow i felt that in my heart wow and sure enough where i could feel the note 
was where the note correlated with the chakras. Absolutely. And because our bodies are just like, you know, I have these singing bowls and I, you know, these large crystal bowls. One of them is an, is an F and it's a heart chakra bowl. And I'm playing this bowl and I notice my piano starts playing a note. For your heart, you're going to feel it in your heart. You play the note for the crown chakra on a bowl, you're going to feel it in your crown. You're going to feel it inside your brain. Right? Each yeah. one of these are like musical instruments in a way. And they're vibrating in sympathetic resonance. So the point is that now I just showed you that, and there's a great film that I helped executive produce on this called Sonic Geometry, that basically shows that geometry is just music in a visible form. So now, now that we've made that correlation, let's listen to the, how the music sounds. Well, when you listen to the music in just tuning, it doesn't sound fabulous. These chords, like the ones I just said, do. They sound just fine. But the way it gets corrected by Pythagoras is something called the Pythagorean comma. So the Pythagorean comma is an adjustment that's made so that you can use this scale across many, many different types of music and keys. I'm originally a musician. So what I then looked at was, well, maybe that's not the right way to do it. Maybe that's not the right way to do it at all. Maybe it's more related to these math constants of the circle and the square, Euler and pi. <clears throat> so then I took that and I said, well, what if I change the major third interval from 1.25, which is five over four interval, to 1.26, because I was following a thread inside the Vitruvian Man by Leonardo da Vinci. In the upper right-hand corner of the page, the man standing like this, Mm -hmm. It has a pagination which says one, two, six. So something told me, maybe I should apply that to the major third and see what happens to all musical tuning when I do that. Do I still need a Pythagorean comma to correct for it? And I called this precise temperament tuning. And what I found is that when I did that along with a perfect fifth at 432 hertz and then applied that same thing all the way through, then all the numbers come out to adding up to nine. Oh, of course. All the decimal positions on them create like a blockchain of the undertone series and overtone series that are already embedded within the note. And all of it comes into perfect alignment with the least amount of beatings that you could ever hear. That's when you have two notes that are close together and they go, da, 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 da. they're out of tune, right? Mm. More so, and, and, and it's funny because I did it purely geometrically. I use the 1.26 as the approach, which is the cube root of two, because you can't double an octave with a major third with 1.25, because 1.25 to the third power would only get you just shy of doubling the octave. So it always sounds out of tune. So by making this adjustment to the 1.26, it gives you the cube root of two. It shows that you can create all musical scales based on three over two for the perfect fifth, and the cube root of two, which is another way of looking at three over two, for the major third. You combine that, you've got now precise temperament tuning. And now musicians and people are able to tune off of it because people who followed my work wanted to debunk it and found that it sounded amazing. And at the San Francisco, you know, conservatory was even played. And uh, uh, Jason Martineau, who's a, you know, PhD musician, uh, basically programmed it and it sounded great. And he was like, whoa, this is like different. Mm. And, and it's based on 432, but it's precise. Now it's not using equal temperament, which is like a cookie cutter approach to music. It's more like a snake. 
So the intervals are very slightly different, so you get more nuance, but it sounds really, really good. And I encourage you to go check it out. Precise temperament tuning. I did it purely from a mathematical, theoretical perspective. Yep. Precise temperament tuning. And you can listen to Jason Martin. He's got a lot of tracks. You can go to my website also, robertedwardgrant.com. And if you just scroll down on the front page, you'll find precise temperament tuning. Click on that. And there's all kinds of examples of of the music of it. But I think we're entering into... You're so brilliant. A new... thank Thank you. It's a new consciousness. Once we can start to realize the power of this 432, it's recognizing the divine into the earth. I think we're moving from this duality, which is yin yang, into yin shen yang. Shen is represented by the X. It's like alpha chi omega, if you think of it in those in those terms. And what that means is that it's this non-dual perspective. Moving away, I mean, we live in this world of extreme polarity right now. And are we going to go into some kind of crazy civil war conflict or whatever? Who knows what's going to happen with this election? But I think there's going to be some of us that are going to be in this middle. Is it like the woo, like the middle way? Like in Taoism, it's the middle way? The middle way. And that's the non-dual way. Okay. So, all right. I'm going to have to ask one last question here and let you go. So just to give us a call to action, essentially, what is... What is the point of our experience here? I believe that we come here to experience and learn, not through didactic learning, but through experiential learning. I believe that we come here with certain karma, certain things that, and conditioning biases. And, you know, you could say that karma in a way in this context of a mental universe is more like a conditioning bias. And what we're here to learn is how to fully love and accept ourselves in whatever circumstance we find ourselves. And when we can learn to love and accept ourselves, I I fundamentally don't believe that the world's a tough place because people hate each other. I believe it's a tough place because people hate themselves. Once we can learn how to love and accept ourselves, then that love and acceptance spreads and permeates through all of your life and experience. Then we can start to learn how to be the change we wanna see in the world. If you want to experience joy, then be the joy. If you want to experience love, then be that love. You know, and this is what Aubrey and I were just talking about. And he was, I was quoting him on this podcast thing that he did. And I really like that mentality because it is about being the change you want to see in the world. And realizing that if you don't like the world experience you're experiencing, then look within and transform your perception of both yourself and the world around you. And that world will change. When we change, the things we see change. Exactly. And when we change the way we see things, we change and the world changes. It's a loop. Yeah, totally. It's all a loop, right? It's all a loop. And it's it's very exciting because this is probably the best time in the last few thousand years to be alive as we're transitioning to this new framework of human thinking and perception. And it's a higher order perspective. And so what's going to happen is you're going to see so many systems, whether they be, you know, all the self-appointed arbiters, government, University, education. Um, I just saw an article that said that kids matriculating out of high school into colleges are down at an alarming rate. Yeah, because it's like people are like, all of a sudden it's not vibing for them. This box, I don't fit. I don't fit. So people are just like rebelling against it. So there needs to be new mechanisms for learning, seeing things in non-binary ways, right? And I... And I think that's why it's reflecting around us too. We're seeing in the world around us that 
you know, it was funny. I saw Bill Maher said, geez, this is alarming. If the, the numbers continue, like everyone in the United States will be non-binary or, or you know, a member of LGBTQ, right? In the next few years, like we're all going to be gay. And it was pretty funny because I was laughing and I thought to myself, well, why are we seeing so much of this reflected in society? And I think it's because it's a reflection of how we think. Again, it's a U inverse. We're starting to move out of this binary zone of ones and zeros into this X superposition, which really represents super conscious thinking. And it's the integration of the masculine and feminine. It's the optic chiasm, which is right. You know, the left brain connects to the right eye and the left eye connects to the right brain. And, yeah. and the left brain becomes the alpha and the, and the right brain becomes the omega. And the two can work together. They don't have to fight with each other. They work together. This recognition of the power of the omega aspect, the power of the right brain, the intuition, the seat of irrationality, the beauty of irrational like thought, the beauty of what it means to be a woman, right? The, the curve, the, the line, all of those things work in perfect complement one with another. And when we see it that way, that is the rise of the feminine. Thank you, Robert. Wow. I mean, so much to soak in. I feel like I'm going to listen to this interview about five times. Um, and I hope other people do too, because I think there are some people in the world that um, are a little further along and have have done this a few times and are here to anchor new realities and new timelines and new levels of consciousness. And so I appreciate that you, I appreciate that you come back to the fringe to bring us along, you know, because it's really helpful because it's about kind of just, it's about having some words spoken that are just beyond awareness or comprehension that help to start pulling us along and anchoring something new. So you definitely speak to that. And um, thank you for sharing. And I hope that I can convince you to be on my podcast. I have a whole bunch of questions for you as well. Oh, I would love it. So if you wouldn't mind returning the favor, I would. I think it would be powerful for uh, a lot of people to hear the journey that you're on. It would be my pleasure, my honor. Thanks everybody for listening to the Pretty Intense podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you heard today and you want to hear more, please click on the subscribe button.